0: say it loud network and mean old lion media presents the history of being black
1: Welcome to another episode of the History of Being Black. I am your host, Eunice Elliott, and every week I have the golden opportunity to talk to some of the greatest thought leaders, not just that I know, but that I can email and that will reply. And so we have some a pretty a fancy uh, company today, if I do say so myself. I'd like to bring to our conversation today, Ahmad T. Ward. Welcome to the History of Being Black, Ahmad.
0: Thank you so much for having me, my friend. Glad to be here.
1: So I've known you slash known of you for some years. And uh, when I look at your bio, uh, it's extremely impressive, but not just because of your professional accolades, but really it seems to be a passion based history and career. And that's always so impressive when I can read your bio and know that you're doing things that you love. So right now you are serving as the executive director for the historic Mitchellville Freedom Park, which is in Hilton Head, South Carolina, Hilton Head Island. So tell me what is Mitchellville Freedom Park and what is it that you do?
0: Absolutely. Um, so Mitchellville is the first self-governed town of formerly enslaved people in the United States, founded on Hilton Head Island in 1862. Um, so what my job is to take a little bit of acreage that we have left. There was about five to 600 acres of this historic community back in the 1860s. There's only about 33 acres left. And so we're going to take what we have and turn it into a cultural attraction where we talk about this community, which had its own form of government. They had schools, they had Churches, they had businesses. Each family had a quarter acre of a lot to grow on. Uh, they were self sufficient, self contained. And this is happening in South Carolina, the state that started the Civil War during slavery. Uh, this was not supposed to happen, but it did. And people do not know about Mitchellville. And I am trying to change that as much as humanly possible.
1: So, b- beyond stating the obvious, why do we not know about Mitchellville? <laughs> <laughs> The first self-governed town of formerly enslaved people. You would think this would be one of the highlights that we would have learned, not only just in American history, but even in our Black history months that we were allowed to explore different things. Why don't we know about Mitchellville?
0: Well, you know, I don't have to tell you that it's a lot of Black stories out there that are, are just not talked about for various reasons. Mitchellville is kind of hard to pinpoint on why we don't know about it, because at its time, like everybody in... America seemed to realize what Mitchellville was like. This was an experiment to see if Africans in America could live on their own, take care of themselves without a hand coming and help them. Um, So when the Union Army takes over Hilton Head in 1861 uh, an early battle of the Civil War, they turn it into the Department of the South. So there's like 30 to 40,000 Union troops on Hilton Head Island at that point, um, which I didn't know until I found out about this, this organization and this story. And so after that, people knew that if they got to Hilton Head, they'd be free even though they were considered contraband of war, right? And so contraband doesn't really have the best connotation, but that's what they were referred to at the time uh, because they weren't free yet. So this is all also happening before the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, Mitchellville becomes a thing in November of 1862, late October, early November when a man named Orange B. Mitchell comes to take over the Department of the South. And he was, uh, of course, a general, uh, an astronomer. He started the first observatory in the state of Ohio. But also he was an abolitionist. And he saw what was happening here and he had this bright idea, like, we're fighting for this ideal. Let's do this with these people here who are trying to chart their own course. Like They they went to the army looking for work. It wasn't like, please help me. Like, hey, I have a skill. I want to take care of my family. What can I do? And so he's the one that makes sure Edge family got a quarter. Of a lot. He gave them access to the Union Army sawmill so they can build houses, and they were building as many as four to five houses a day once they got started. They actually had a competition between the contraband and the army carpenters to see what the design would be. The army lost, which I'm sure it was hard pill for them to swallow. And so these black people designed their community, built the houses that went into the community, and used the grid that the Army Corps of engineers laid out to set this thing up. And they were doing all of these things using these resources, but really charting their own course. Unfortunately for Mitchell, he contracts yellow fever and passes away about 45 days into this. Oh, so he wow. doesn't. Yes. He doesn't really see the town at his height, which at his height had 3000 people and about 500 homes in there between 62 and 68 was the big push uh, in Mitchellville. And also this is the f- site of the first mandatory school system in the state of South Carolina and potentially the Southeast. We're trying to figure that out. So there was mandatory school for all children between the ages of six and 15. They had to go to school because um, I think these people realize we're talking about freedom. I mean, you can't get freed up here, right? So they can enslave the body again, but they can't enslave the mind. And so these folks understood that their real freedom is coming from up here. And so these folks had all of this wherewithal and people, like Clara Barton, who started the American Red Cross, knew about Mitchellville. Uh, Harriet Tubman, those who saw the movie, the end of the movie is the Cumby River Raid, where they freed about 756 people. Well, she personally led a hundred of those folks back to Hilton Head, and they settled in Mitchellville. Most of the men end up joining the army. Uh, William Lloyd Garrison, who was the foremost abolitionist of his time, purposely wanted to come to Mitchellville to see it for himself because he had heard so much about it and he gives a speech at the, the first church there the day before Lincoln is assassinated. And so it has all of this history. And I can't really tell you why people don't know about it
1: sitting here just in awe because it's not just like a, a little project. Uh, what you're saying was a major, you know, ecosystem run by former enslaved people that the top names of the names we have heard of, the abolitionists you mentioned, uh, William Wood Garrison and different people that why wouldn't we know? Now, obviously, the history of being black in America has had to be altered and uh, abridged in order to perpetuate falsehoods and um, <laughs> and whatnot. You know, you did that very
0: creatively. I'm impressed.
1: No, not it's just a man keeping his thumb on a neck. But <laughs> but what is? But more poetically speaking. When when you show up to become the executive director of this project, what percentage of people that when you tell them what you do, they say, what? I've never heard of that.
0: Probably 95.
1: 95. I would think probably like 97, 98.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Probably about 95. Well, the thing is, there there are some people uh, who look like us in the area, who familiar, you know, but but mostly when you get outside of the area, folks didn't know what Mitchellville was. And so every time I told the story, like I just gave you a, a thumbnail sketch, people are in awe. Like, oh, my gosh. I, well, I haven't heard about this. I'm like I wish I could tell you what I think. You know, Mitchellville is a thing. The army leaves in 1868. And of course, the economic engine kind of goes away. So they start to work uh, as a more subsistence form of government, the things that they were going to sell to the Union Army or barter, and it kept it internal. But it starts to contract. So it's getting smaller. People the war is over. Folks go to find loved ones that, where they were separated from. They move for more opportunities. Uh, they move closer to the mainland because it's not a bridge to Hilton Head since 1956. So mm-hmm. everything is boats. And so they're trying to get closer to where they can be around other people. And so the eventually dwindles down. And by 1893, a major hurricane comes in and takes care of everything else. But even after it's physically gone, I mean, for the last 160 years, it still be considered the Mitchellville neighborhood. Like Mitchellville never stops getting talked about in some form or fashion. My theory, you know, after reconstruction is sabotage, which is another whole episode <laughs> all together.
1: Well, and that's what I was going to say, is it when you, when you're talking about the hurricane or just the infrastructure of people getting to and fro, are you saying that uh, Mitchellville kind of just disintegrated slowly by natural causes and not by any kind of like riots or eminent domain, which we've right. seen in other places like Seneca Village or, you know, things like that. And other stories that we hear of that used to be a thriving black community, self-sufficient black community. Then all of a sudden, eminent domain is exercised and white folks come and say, no, no, we're going to take that back. Yeah, so it was That's not what happened with Mitchellville.
0: No, it's not like Seneca Village where they just took it over and made it Central Park. This was more of people move out of, you know, necessity and the land grab that's happening in the South now wouldn't really start to the 20th century. Okay. So um, I'll give you a perfect example. You know, those sea, the sea islands are not necessarily easy to get to at this point in time. So the Black people who were in the Sea Islands, that's that's basically how the Gullah Geechee culture was able to sustain itself because people couldn't get to it and, and tear it up, right? For lack of a better term. And so these people are here insulated just a little bit. But then in the 1900s going into the mid 20th century, that's when everything changes. So in the year 1900, there's probably about 3,000 people on Hilton Head. Most of them look like us. What? By 1930, there's only 300. Black people on Hilton Head, because people who came in and bought up land to turn into a hunting and fishing refuge. Loomis and Thorn, which was the company, they just came and bought up majority of the island. And then Charles Fraser comes in in the 50s, turns the South end into a getaway for people with means. And so the land grab starts then. So mm-hmm. mid 20th century, uh, Native Islanders who are really the Black people on the island or Gullah, the Gullah community. Um, Native Islanders control about 3,500 acres on Hilton Head. Now it's less than 800. And that's it's tax insane. sales.
1: Is there now... Are, are they known as the Gullah? People like, you know, is it still, I don't want to say indigenous, like a, a cultural site there for the people that remain?
0: Yeah, they're, they're, they refer to themselves as Gullah. On Hilton Head, they call themselves Native Islanders, but it's, they're still Gullah folks. And so the Gullah Geechee Corridor stretches from Wilmington, to North Carolina to about Jacksonville, Florida. But that whole coastline is full of Gullah and Geechee. Now, I always heard Gullah, South Carolina, Geechee, Georgia. Right, but it's okay. the same culture per se with very limited changes. But in our area, they referred to as Gullah, and so these people are just regular, ordinary folks. And so the people among us who are not as uh, savvy, who come in the area looking for Gullah people, expect that they're gonna like go on safari or something and right, see people right. exactly. barefoot shucking oysters, and that's just not what that's not what it is.
1: So the people there are descendants of the people that originally settled in that area.
0: Absolutely. We have records from the hospital that was there and from like military accounts. Those families still live on Hilton Head or in the general area of Beaufort County.
1: And so when you have this hotbed of like such a historical area, what is there now? You're there efforting the, the development and construction of this new project. What's there right now outside of the 800 acres? You say that, you know, they still have, is it like shopping centers? Is it still just like hunting land? What, what, what are you looking at right now when you look out in this area?
0: Hilton Head is a resort island. Right. And it's a high-end resort island. So you have a lot of beach, of course, beachfront property. You've got a lot of retired people. Uh, folks who come in who have worked you know, their whole lives and they come to the Hilton Head to settle for the right. rest of their lives or whatever and so it's it's like a beach resort community and there's some amenities and believe it or not for a 12 mile island there's like 40,000 people that live on it wow. uh, but the, the, the kicker is every year this island sees 2.7 million people in tourism
1: so how, how does it go from the first self-governed and uh, formerly enslaved community to uh, the, one of the hottest tourist destinations in the country? How, well, how does it make that shift, though?
0: You buy up the land, uh, you turn it into a resort, and you put and you put big hotels there. Um, the thing is, there's a thing called heirs' property. all right. And so if you don't have a will or you don't have a deed for real to the land, People have had this land for 80, 90 years. You just pass it in the family. Right. But without a will, there's this thing about heirs' property. So you have six brothers and sisters, but you got one who no longer lives there, right? Someone in Delaware can contact that brother or sister, offer them $50,000 or money they have never seen before, right, for the land. And the land is worth so much more than that. Right. If they get that in writing, then they can go to South Carolina. Hey, look, I got a a deed here. Y'all off and they can kick everybody off. You know. So now they get control of the land or you buy property next to a, uh, a plot of land, you build a $2 million home on it, property values go through the roof, they can't afford it anymore land goes up for tax sale. And so that's how it evaporated. And the land is so intrinsically connected to Gullah culture when the land leaves, the culture leaves. And so it's really it's really under attack. People don't speak Gullah like they used to, but now it's also in vogue. Like Harvard has a Gullah language class. Like people are coming to le- yes, people are coming to learn about Gullah cooking. You got folks who are not Gullah creating Gullah art and selling it. And so there's people making money off of the culture who don't reflect the culture which is a a story as old as time, obviously. Um, So that's happening in the area as well. And it's not just on Hilton Head. That's in the general low country area.
1: So now, Ahmad, when you're talking, obviously you've uh, studied and you're there and you're feet on the ground, boots on the ground. But before you went there, started this amazing new project, you were with the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute as education director for like 15 years. And so that's when I first came to know of you. And uh, anytime someone needed to know something about Black folks in the media, they would say, let's call Ahmad. He will tell us about it. So... Um, including your time at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, tell me why is this such a passion point for you? It's so many of us as Black folks in America can hear these interesting stories. We can read a book, we can watch a movie, we can share some stories and say, hey, did you know? But what is it that made it like your life's work? What Was it something about your childhood that you got attached to the stories and wanted to preserve it and promote it? Or how did you get here that this is your career?
0: I was always hungry for information. So um I'm the kid that used to read the encyclopedia. You know, wow, okay. the Britannica, you know, like not not just because oh my nerd, let me look at it, but just I like to learn stuff. And so this thirst for information, when you when you're doing that all the time, and I'm fortunate that I could retain, it's not like I'm intelligent for real. I can just retain information, right? Um, but you do this and then you talk to people and like, oh you don't know that. Okay, let me learn. So And I also have parents who push me to to really find out about myself and other things. And so the more you learn, the more you realize that, hey, man, everybody doesn't know this. And so... My background is in art. Like I, I, I'm not a. I was not a history major. You know, I was an art major. I got a museum studies uh, master's degree. I was doing well, that.
1: How do you go from okay, having uh, this thirst for knowledge, being a curious child, getting a degree in art, and first of all, who gets a degree in museum studies? And so, <laughs> <laughs> like, who, like, how did you get to that point that you said, "I know what. I know what I'll get a degree in museum studies. You're
0: not the first
1: I, to go to museums."
0: I asked the same question before I went to that grad program. Who gets a degree in museum studies? Who does that? I don't know black people are doing that. And so I was trying to avoid being an art teacher. Okay. I, I kind of was thinking about commercial art and doing some things. I, I couldn't really determine what I wanted to do. It really came this close to being a photographer, honestly. And one of my advisors said, go look at Hampton University's program for museum studies. I figured, okay, this place is amazing. Look at all this incredible artwork they have. I'll do this as the nine to five and do my stuff on the side. Right. I want to create. I didn't really create. (laughs) So uh, I got the gig in Birmingham as their education assistant. So even though I ducked teaching by going to grad school, the first thing I did when I got to Birmingham was go to each classroom in the greater Birmingham metro area and do outreach programs talking about the civil rights movement and so that's really what made the fire grow even more because I'm learning all this stuff studying to go talk to these kids and then when I'm talking to the kids I realize how much of it they don't know and then you had teachers who had no clue again really no fault of their own and so for me I guess it really started to catch fire in those first formative years at the institute, especially when I'm looking at the differences between the school systems in downtown Birmingham and then going to Hoover or Homewood, I mean, the drastic change. And so I'm like, i gonna make sure that these kids know as much about themselves as humanly possible. And so that's why I don't have one on the day and I usually do. I'm going to the classrooms. I'm making sure I got a suit and a tie on. I might be the first brother to see with one on. I want them to know that they can do that, too. They can be better than I am at this. That was my whole thing. And that's really where it started for me, trying to make sure that they got the same opportunities as the kids who live on the other side of the valley, who got computers in every classroom and, and there are people pouring money into the school. But then I go to Kingston and, you know, the lockers look like they've fallen down. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I, I can't do anything about the, the financial situation in the school, but daggone it, you are gonna get this Fred shoulders work, or <laughs> well, I'm gonna hammer this, uh, you know, Rosa Parks and and, Ellie and Claudette Colvin into your system, so you know what, who you come from. So you know better, you do better.
1: That's interesting, though, because I feel like there's a direct correlation between you wanting to show them a black man in a suit and tie, knowing that they may not know that that's an option for them to dress that way or they may have never seen a black man that wasn't their preacher or speaking at a funeral in a suit and tie. Right. And so in that same way that you realize the import of them seeing you that way, that's why we don't know about Mitchellville, because everybody knows that if you see greatness in yourself or see what's possible and available, you'll probably think you can do it, too.
0: Right. Amen. That's it. And so I want them to see greatness in themselves. And so when people, when kids ask me about what, you know, how I got involved, like you did, I'm like, man, you can do this. You can do this. And the thing that I used to say that I used to get under teachers' skin that I couldn't understand why, they, why I would, because I would talk about Dr. King, but I'd say, hey, listen, let's be careful not to deify King. You know, so people call asking about doing stuff for King. That's cool. I can do that. But can I talk about Lucinda Roby, too? Or can I talk about these? <laughs> can I talk about Gary e. Morgan? you know, because I wanted to expand their minds because we hold King on such a high pedestal that the kids believe they can't get there. Right. right. And so I always wanted to tell him
1: that was him. He was a once in a lifetime thing. There's nothing required or expected of me. No one's looking for me to be Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.
0: I used to tell him you could be King tomorrow. You could be King tomorrow if you want to, because he was a human like you, you can do, you can be a change agent where you are right now and that's that's really what my motivation is. I want these kids to understand the power that they hold and the people they come from. Because once they know it, you can't stop.
1: Right. And it seems just like a, a, a tired refrain to say representation matters, but when you see somebody that looks like you, especially a black folks, first thing we say is, Oh, I can do that. I, now, I remember my Angela saying that black folks will watch, be sitting in the audience or whatever they see somebody doing, it, they say, Oh, I can do that. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's why it is important for us to see images of ourselves, you know. Uh, On the space shuttle, or in the White House, or in Congress, or writing books, or telling stories. And so when I see a black man who has a degree in museum studies, and I say, hey, black man, what made you do that? What is it? that um, when you're looking at as a student of history, as a student of not only just history, our culture, unique culture here in this country, tell me what is your unique perspective in having a greater understanding than most of the past and where we are today, what you see today? What is your unique vantage point from being able to see
0: both? It helps to tell the story for me that our people have always persevered. (laughs) They've always found a way to get over Like. Technically, we were not supposed to make it. Like, we were supposed to go the route of the Native Americans, no disrespect intended. Like, that was the plan, but they it just didn't happen. Like, why did these Black people keep coming? And I, I think it's just something inherent in our experience that it, it makes us just keep moving. And so once you can see, once young people or people young at heart can see that and then put it in their own proper context of where they are now, they can see routes there's ways out of it. There's a lane to move forward. Cause I can follow this example. I can do what this person did and get out of my current situation because they were worse than I was and look where they ended up. And so that's what, that's the power and be able to see the past as opposed to the present. And unfortunately there's a push to remove history, you know, and we're being dumbed down in my opinion on purpose but we're being dumbed down and so and i mean as a whole america as a whole but we have to prohibit that from happening to our young people so when i was coming up you know my folks i was like look you're not gonna get all this stuff in school we're gonna tell you and so that's how i came out Like i'm gonna give more to my kids and the kids i come in contact with than they're gonna get in school because i know what they're gonna get in school They're, they're gonna get a smiling slave picture you know they're gonna have this thing that that makes excuses for the masters uh, about punishment. And that's not real. And so I used to have to give disclaimers. I still give disclaimer. It's like, hey, we're going to talk about real stuff here.
1: When you say disclaimer, is it like to say, I'm probably, is that like your apology in advance for telling the truth?
0: Not as, it's not an apology. I just get them ready. You know, because uh, if people ask me now, I made a determination when I turned 40. I was no longer gonna have kumbaya conversations about race. So when people called, asked me about doing something, I would tell them, hey, you wanna hold hands and sing? I'll come in the audience, all right? But if you you wanna talk for real, I get on stage. But I'm telling you point blank, I'm not sugarcoating. Anything, <laughs> okay? I'm giving you an opportunity to tell me no, and I won't think anything of you. I just, I'll sit in the audience. It's all good. But if you want me to talk, I'm gonna talk.
1: people feel like they're ready to listen now until you start talking, and then people are like, oh, "Wait, <laughs> wait, I wasn't there. Wait a minute, you know." And right. So It's so much still left that when even though you will have uh, a counterpart say, well, I didn't have slaves. And then I say I wasn't a slave. There still is this tremendous guilt and defense associated with having just the conversations. And that's why we're still at the same place so many years later, because in any argument or any situation where there's a, a disagreement, someone has to be the victim, right, in order to win, because you have to say you wronged me. And in the story of slavery it's pretty non-debatable, and so that's why it's like <laughs> asinine to us that we still have to have, keep having this conversation. Like, where are you the victim in this? There's no argument here. This is what happened. This is what what happened, and let's move forward. You know. So I know you have two gorgeous daughters. I'm curious about, and your wife is a, a amazingly talented. um I want to say I was going to say freedom fighter herself.
0: Yeah, that fits.
1: Okay, Uh, so I'm so curious about how your daughters are being raised. I understand, you know, they go to school, they have their peer groups, but is is your household a place where I know y'all have y'all's bedside Baptist... Yes, y'all singing and, you know, I mean, but as a unit, I know you say you have the responsibility to tutor kids and to kids you come in contact with. But what is the difference experience they're getting that most kids probably aren't getting just getting regular education in um, school systems?
0: We have always talked to our kids in very real form, um, you know, not to scare them. But listen, I got to give them what I got. Like my father sat me down at the age of 11 and taught me how to deal with police officers because mm-hmm. he knew. At 11, they don't see me. I'm not a child. Right. I'm a threat. And so that was him doing me a solid, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so I'm doing the same thing for my kids. And even though I know I've had some folks say, well, how can you talk to them about that kind of stuff? I'm like, because I got to. They're going to grow up black and female. Like, you know, like that's, come on. Like there's, there's strikes against them from the jump. And I tell them, you are. You are a young black woman, and people are going to try to throw everything at you, and you got to be ready to to bat all that stuff out of the way. And so, when it comes to conversations about you know real life things, we we talked about real life things. Now, last year was hard because it was like one thing after the other, right? And um, I go go back to the experience we had probably late summer where we watched 13th. I had seen it, but I realized that they hadn't. And so like, we had to have a whole debrief. There was tears after it was over with, you know, but I felt like that's something we needed to do. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not trying to torture children, obviously, but they got to know what's real. And so I'm always trying to say, Hey, I'm going to be upfront with you. I'm going to do everything possible to help you. I'm going to let nobody hurt you, but I got to give you what's real. And so I talked about this. A promise is not a humble brag. <laughs> I'm bringing this up because of what happened. So I did a TEDx about five years, almost five years ago now, and it was about this, like me teaching my kids, you know, because one of my kids asked, me, "What's a racist?" And it was after Riley Cooper from the Philadelphia Eagles got caught in the internet at a concert, and we had talked about race, but my oldest said, "What's a racist?" And so we had to have that conversation. And this woman, bless her soul, she wrote me a three-page letter out of the program booklet. That's how pressed she was. She tore up pages out of the program booklet during the TEDx. It was like 12 of us talking. And she wrote me this impassioned note and put it in my hand after I finished talking because we had to go do a talk back outside at Alice Stevens Center. And she's like, I'm giving this to you in love. I hope you receive it that way. And I said, ma'am, I will choose to receive it that way. Thank you. So I went and read it. And the rest of the folks got mad, right, <laughs> about it. Because she basically was like, how can I be an ally when you're teaching your kids that I'm an enemy? So she missed everything I said and found the victimhood, like you mentioned a the ago.
1: Right. It's like, I'm not and talking so- about you. But you're, defend- you're already defending it.
0: Yeah. Right. And during the talk, I never said, white people, get your stuff together. That's not, that was never the thing. And we talked about microaggressions and how it affects people. And so I kept that. I got a letter somewhere here now. But it, it was just a reminder. Like, one of the, the advisors told me, hey, look, you hit her in a way that made her think. And that's the good thing. And I'm like, you're right. And that's how I'm going to look at it. Because who knows five years after the fact, maybe she's had an epiphany about the situation, especially everything that happened last year. And so you just have to, I have to be real with them because the world's going to be real with them. The world is not going to pull any punches with them. It's not going to be nice to them at all. And I realize that. Um, you know, Malcolm said the most unprotected person on earth is the black woman. He's right. Amen. So I'm raising two black women and I got to make sure they can form their own protection if I'm not around or the mom's not around. And so that's, that's really how I'm approaching this. Now we have a lot of fun, obviously, but I want to make sure that they're ready and I'm, I'm building warriors because they got to be.
1: I love it. I love it. We're going to wrap this up. I had a sobering thought when you were talking about you, remembering the conversation you had with your dad when you were 11, about for the least. And, and I know you were 11 in the eighties, probably. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, you have a situation like Tamir Rice. And I would imagine as a young man remembering that conversation, thinking of what conversations we still have to continuously have and how many of these conversations we can have and how much does it matter? Because we have it in our homes and say, like, do this, do this. And then when we have another incident, it's like, well, why didn't he do that? And it's like, you know, and so it's a conversation, unfortunately, we'll keep having. Yeah, but I think the the magic behind it is having the conversations. And like you said, having the tough conversations and making them count, making them hurt. And sometimes when you uh, heal from that wound, that scar tissue makes you stronger and better and you learn from it. So um, hopefully that's what these conversations here in the history of being Black will do as well. So one of the things we always like our guests to do is to offer us an action item. We want our listeners to leave this program saying, I'm going to do this and this is going to be the change. Hashtag be the change. What is one action item that, Someone's listening to us right now can say, okay, I can do this today. I can do it this month. I can make it a goal to do it this year to be the change
0: be a positive influence in one child's life that doesn't live in your house.
1: Mm, okay.
0: Because that ripple effect is going to go to that kid's brothers and sisters, potentially to his parents and his other group. You can't, you might not be able to change the world, but you change this one life and show him mm. something different. Your powers go out. I mean, that ripple effect just keeps on going and going and going and you have an influence. So be a difference in some young person's life that is not directly connected to you.
1: I love that. I think we can do that. Make sure if you've already done that, or you can get inspired to do that. Make sure you share that story with us uh, on social media and use the hashtag #BeTheChange. Make sure you tag the History of Being Black podcast. Ahmad Ward, you are the man. Hopefully, you will come back and join us again uh, for Absolutely. another episode. Anytime, and thank you, want you. This thing. You guys take care and make sure you join us again for the next episode of the History of Being Black.
0: The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Unicelli associate producer Lauren Turner, edited by Ken Johnson. Executive Producers Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean Old Lion and Say It Loud Network production.